Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight we're going to be reading In the Vine Country by Edith Somerville and Martin Ross. It was published in 1893. For those that are new to the Bore You to Sleep podcast, welcome. The podcast is designed for you to listen to as you go to sleep. I'll read you a bedtime story that will play in the background as a distraction and hopefully help you fall asleep. I love bringing out episodes to listeners everywhere because it helps people get a good night's rest. The show is also free of charge. The only cost is that I please ask you to tell a friend or leave a comment and rating in your podcast app. It helps me reach more people to help them get a good night's rest. You're also welcome to say hello at the website boreyoutosleep.com. In the meantime, sit back and enjoy the show. In the Vine Country, Chapter 1 It was our first day's cub hunting, and things had been going against us from the outset. To begin with, we had started rather late. It is noticeable that the minutes between 5 and 6 a.m. are fewer and closer together than they are at any other period of the day. And when halfway to the meet, we found that Betty had given way to her sporting proclivities and had surreptitiously followed us When it is explained that Betty is a St. Bernard puppy of cart-horse dimensions, whose expression of smiling imbecilately only cloaks a will of iron, it will be understood that there was trouble before us. The trouble began at once. Directly she saw she was discovered. She ran away and the next time we saw her she was three fields ahead of us, lumbering cheerfully into covert at the heels of the hounds, pursued by several cows and the curses of the master. By the time that she had been caught and immured in the bedroom of the nearest cottage, we were covered with confusion and blazing with heat, and while we were precariously scrambling onto our horses' backs by the help of the pigsty door, we were told an excited old man that the hounds had found and were firing away like the devil out of the far side of the wood. This happened to be one of those statements that are founded not so much on fact as on a desire to keep things stirring and pleasant. But none the less did it send us at the inconvenient speed to the other side of the covert, 
there to find that the hounds had never left and were hunting slowly back towards the side from which we had just come. Not long after this, my second cousin lost her temper and said she hated cubbing and wished she was back in Connemara or anywhere out of the county of Cork. This expression of opinion occurred when she was picking herself up out of the potato furrow into which she and her horse had ingloriously rolled and it was a good deal embittered by the fact that she had hurt her knee, torn her habit and broken her hunting crop. The day ended with this incident, so far at least as we were concerned. Betty was released from the captivity that she had not ceased to bewail in quivering, infantine shrieks and we turned our faces toward home. There is something very humbling in coming at 10 o'clock to a late edition of the family breakfast with nothing to justify the routing up of the household at 5am except a torn habit and a bruised knee. And we said to each other as we went unostentatiously up the back stairs that cubbing was not worth the candle by which one had to get up to be in time for it. We did not know that a few days afterwards we should be hanging out of the window of the train as, at a painfully early hour, had passed a covert in the vicinity, straining jaundiced eyes of jealousy at the distant specks that represented the fields and the hounds. Specks who were to remain in the county cork and go out cubbing instead of faring forth as we were doing to take our pleasure in foreign lands. The letter that we found on the dining room table when we came downstairs on that day had been sacrificed to Betty, was responsible for this unexpected change of circumstances. It said majestically, you are to go to the vineyards of the Madoc and must start at once in order to be in time for the vintage. And in spite of a grand and complete ignorance of Madoc, its vintages and wines in general, we accepted the position with calm and even satisfaction. The jibes of our friends were many and untiring, and were the harder to bear that we felt a secret scepticism as to their fitness for this large and yet delicate mission. What did we know of Chateau Lafitte or Mouton Rothschild except that a glass and a half of the former had once compelled my second cousin to untimely slumber at dessert and when on a foggy morning we drove away from home. The dank air was heavy with prognostications that we should return as bottle-nosed dipsomaniacs. And the last thing that caught our eye as we turned the final corner of the avenue 
was the flutter of a piece of blue ribbon. We had singularly detestable journey to London, or perhaps it was that a summer spent in country remoteness made the train and its loathsome sister, the steamboat, more intolerable than usual. As far as Dublin, we were comparatively confident, though the trees at the station were rustling a little in the wind, and the window frames shook ominously in dismal accompaniment to the lamentations of the emigrants who crowded the platforms, waiting for the down train to cork. There are happily few things in the world that are as bad as they are expected to be, but a bad crossing is worse than the combined efforts of imagination and remembrance can make it. This, at least, is the opinion of my second cousin, who ought to, by this time, have some knowledge of a subject to which, according to her own reckoning of the time occupied in each crossing, she has given some fifty years of the best years of her life. The trees and the window frames had not overstated the case, and we had the gloomy satisfaction of hearing the stewardess remark, as we neared Holyhead, that it had been a rough passage. We could have told her so ourselves, but still it was gratifying to have the thing placed on an official basis. In the pale morning, as we endured that last long hour before Euston is reached, we read in headachy snatches a pamphlet that we had been lent about the wines of Madoc, and our souls sank at the prospect of expounding the laws of fermentation to readers who would be as oppressively bored by it as ourselves. But our first day in London routed this hobgoblin. We were to enjoy ourselves. We were to taste claret if we wished, or talk bad French to the makers of it if it amused us, but to improve other people's minds by figures and able disquisitions on viticulture and the treatment of the phylloxera that was not we heard with thanksgiving to be our mission. The three days before our start were spent in the manner customary in such cases. That is to say, we moved incessantly and at an ever-quickening pace between the Strand, the Army and Navy stores, and High Street, Kensington, laden with small parcels, footstore from the unaccustomed flagstones, and careworn from the effort to utilise the underground return tickets, that an ideally perfect programme had indeed us to take in the morning. In addition to these usual cares, another more poignant anxiety fell to our lot. We will lend a Kodak, for the benefit of the unlearned, it may be mentioned that a Kodak is a photographic camera 
of the kind that is to the ordinary species as a compressed meat lozenge to a round of beef, and as neither of us knew anything about it, it became necessary to learn its mechanism in a fevered ten minutes, or to leave it behind. Ambition fired us to the attempt, and having adjourned with the Kodak and an instructor to the severely simple scenery of the gardens on the Thames Embankment, we received there our first and only lesson. What its results were will never be known to the public. A group of intoxicated ghosts lolling on a bench in the depths of a spotted fog can be of little interest to anyone except the artists, and even to their indulgent eyes, its charm is of a somewhat morbid character. After these agitations, the corner seats of a railway carriage at Victoria had a restful luxury about them that was almost stagnation. The consciousness of two portmanteaus registered to Bordeaux almost made up for the Cumbrow's row of hand packages that squatted in the netting, and the half hour of waiting for the train to start was a period of soothing inaction, scarcely ruffled by the slow filling of the carriage to its limit of five on each side and merely moved to a languid enjoyment by the inexorable determination of the latest comers and a bride and a bridegroom to sit next to each other, other irrespective of all previous arrangements of old ladies and their baskets. They had about them the well-known power of making their innocent and well-meaning fellow creatures feel in the way and in the wrong. And the eyes of the carriage sought the windows or the ceilings as if by word of command, when after settling down of the glowingly new bags and rugs was completed, the latest comers leaned back and gazed into each other's faces with an unaffected ecstasy. The fact that both wore gold-rimmed spectacles, imparting a sort of serious luster to their mutual regard. The gaze seemed to us to last most of the way to Dover, except at those moments when a glance or two was given to their fellow passengers a glance of almost compassionate wonder that people so uninteresting and so superfluous should be alive. It gave us an instant pleasure when some time afterwards, on board the boat we saw the bride's fringe was blown into dejected wisps, and that her groom's nose was blue and his face pinched. Before we reached Dover, an example was vouchafed to us further proof, if such were needed, of the difficulty of saying goodbye agreeably 
at the window of a railway carriage. In this case, the victims of the customs stood on the platform, smiling spasmodically at the other victim in the carriage and saying at intervals, Well, you'll write, won't you? So good of you to come and see me off. Well, mind, you write. Oh yes, dear, be sure you give my love to Mary and Aunt Williams. Then they all smiled brightly and nodded their heads. And the traveller, with her chin upon the window sill, beamed galvanically down upon her friends, and in her turn adjured them not to forget to write. As the train moved off at last, the farewells thickened to a climax, and we were privileged to observe how, when the final delicate flutter of the hand had been given, the smile disappeared from the face of the traveller, and she thankfully yielded herself to the deferred enjoyment of her newspaper. Of the further journey to Paris, there is happily little to record. De Hocht Gluck hat rein le dear, and the most satisfactory travelling is that which lends itself least to description. The Calais boat made its journey in the most brilliant of sunshine and the most refreshing of breezes, trampling its way along the water at a pace that made the tall merchantmen look more old-world and stately than usual as they moved serenely down the channel. The male part of the passengers walked the deck as if their lives depended on it, and the custom of the men, the ladies, sat in sheltered places and tried to keep their hair tidy and all alike exhibited the hypnotic consciousness of the presence of a sketchbook that makes the most cautious sketcher the object of instant remark and suspicion. We sat the night in the warm, airless courtyard of the Paris Hotel. Tall, dusty shrubs in pots hung their lank leaves limply over our heads. Waiters flitted like bats to and fro between the kitchen on one side and the salamander on the other. A French family consisting of a papa, a mama, a beautifully behaved daughter with her hair in a queue, a humorous old friend of a godfatherly type, and a little boy with tasseled boots partook of various liquids at a table near enough to us to permit of our hearing their effortless, endless babble, and also to observe with ever-growing hatred the self-conscious gambols of the little boy. Later on, they adjourned to the salon. The daughter performed a selection of music. She began with the confident rendering of La Prière d'une Vierge, one of those pieces which once was the strength and glory of every budding pianist day, but now it's old age. 
is only heard limping and faltering over the greasy keys of hotel pianos. And she finished with the operatic gallop in which the treble fled about in lonely frenzy and the bass retired onto the lowest octave of the piano and there a fit of St. Vitus's dance. The little boy pirouetted around the room. The papa, mama and godfather clapped their hands and laughed indulgently and a good many of the windows that gave on to the courtyard were suddenly and violently shut. We went to bed after that, that is to say, we retired into a good-sized opera box, with windows opening onto the lamps and palms, and a general interior effect of red curtains and mirrors, it is one of the strangest features of French hotels that dressing tables are not included in any suite of bedroom furniture. There are looking glasses by the score. There are handsome marble slabs bearing ornate clocks that do not go. There are gorgeous amours of glass, but never a good commonplace, useful dressing table. French people seem to do without them in the same simple, uncomplaining way that they do without baths. We cannot pretend to say we slept well in our opera box. Everything in the hotel seemed to stay up all night, including a small but devoted party of fleas and the atmosphere. Even when diluted with as much courtyard air as the windows would let in, it was very heavy and very hot. We came down the next morning feeling unrefreshed and not at all disposed to bestow of our substance on the street musician since eight o'clock had been playing national airs on an accordion in the courtyard. That concludes tonight's readings. I hope it made you feel a little drowsy before sleep. If you want to listen to more episodes, you're more than welcome. Please check them out. And until next time, good night and rest easy.